You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guests are Mikael Jonsson, the co-founder and general partner at Ox. If you have product market fit, there is this intermediate step. But if you want to build a really large company that where you have sustainable long-term growth, you have to build the foundation of the growth engine before you just double down on growth. And Ola Sars, the founder and CEO of Soundtrack Your Brand. When you move from go-to-market fit into the growth and mode stage, you have to have your intake, your new customer model working and sound and growing with, with solid economics, but you also have to have your expansion business meaning that your customers that you have grown. Those two together is the key to unlock kind of exponential growth moving forward. So Daniel, we have two guests today for the first time. Indeed we have, and it's a new one for us and exciting to have both an investor and a CEO running a SaaS company on the show at the same time. And a little bit talking about the same thing, but coming in from two different angles, so to say. It's gonna be interesting to see where this ends up. Absolutely, so this is a little bit different. It's not like we are focusing on a company only and a person at that company. So this is more, more I wouldn't say of a classroom setting, but, but it's more a mix of theory and also a use case. And this is a part of the three-parter uh, where we talk to Mikkel at Ox about product market fit, go-to-market fit, and moat and growth. And this is number two in that series, and here we go. Today we are joined by Mikael Jonsson, uh, co-founder and general partner at Ox, but not only him, we're also really happy to have Ola Sars, the founder and CEO at Soundtrack Your Brand here in the SAS Nordic podcast today. So welcome, gentlemen. Thanks so much, Thomas. Thank you, thank you. It's really nice to have you here. And I'm just realizing as I'm looking at the screen here, like, you know, it's two fan favorites returning to the show. And Thomas, we've actually never done two on two. This is a a new thing for us. We're elevating our podcast game now. This is a first. This is a first. Awesome. And and today's episode is going to be slightly different. It's going to be slightly different from what you guys are used to. We're actually going to try to put the theory and practice a little bit up against each other. Like, let's see if we agree here. Or, or if there's a bunch of disagreements here, we're going to talk specifically about go-to-market fit. But before we jump into that main topic, let's let's just you know, for the sake of the audience here, if, if some some of the people don't know you, Mikael, we we'll start with you. Who is Mikael? I'm the co-founder and general partner of Aux. Uh, I've been investing in software and B2B for the better part of 23 years. The most recent 15 years of those all into SaaS. And at Ox, we try to back the most promising European SaaS companies at the scale of stage. So Series A, Series B. Awesome. And what about you, Ulla? Um, the founder and CEO with Soundtrack Your Brand, which is a B2B music streaming service live in 75 markets. Um, and um, I'm actually, I came from the B2C side, so I'm new into B2B SaaS, but we're almost 10 years into it now. And I'm... Um, Still learning, but loving the B2B SaaS environment. I love that you say you're new after 10 years. I love that. Uh, <laughs> and also, we, we, we actually spoke with um, Tommy at Relix the other day, and, and he said that you know there were 1,600 people at Relix, and they saw themselves as uh, they were only beginning, so only in the startup phase. 
But uh, all right, so we talked to you, Mikael, a while ago, and then we focused on product market fit. So if you refresh our memories first, so could you just tell us in short what it is and when you know you have it? Yeah, I mean, we, we think about the sort of projection and growth of a SaaS company in three distinct phases. First one of those is establishing product market fit. Then there's the intermediate step of go-to-market fit, which we're going to talk about today. And then it's the you know the, the long-term game of growth and moat. But starting with the product market fit stage, as I think most people will realize, there, there's so many different definitions out there. Most of them are super unhelpful because they're very fluffy and nebulous. So when we think about product market fit in B2B SaaS, it's a fairly quantitative metric. It's all about retention and usage. And at this early, relatively early stage, it's probably more about the gross retention than net retention because most companies haven't really invested into an upward sales motion. So gross retention and usage, those are really the things that we focus on to establish whether you found product market fit. Okay. Ola, do you agree? Yes, I love this framework and I've been talking to Mickey and his team about it for years. Uh, I love the framework of product market fit first, go to market fit and growth and moat and uh, follow it uh, like a good um, pupil uh, under the teacher. <laughs> but jo- jokes aside, I actually agree. Okay, <laughs> agree so you're with- 100% aligned with Mikael about what product market fit is. I-, I am. I am. It's it's obviously not as simple as you know just a couple of metrics, but the end result needs to lead to those metrics. Otherwise, everything else is irrelevant, right? So it's obviously um, the means to the end and. Um, it, back to your initial comments, it's it's extremely hard to get to product market fit, and a lot of lot of companies do the the, the massive mistake of premature scaling, right? And uh, even starting to try to scale before you even reach the first step of this three step ladder uh, product market fit. So I agree with Mickey. You need to you need to look at at the end of the day your gross retention. If the the customers aren't using your product and not staying with your product you probably shouldn't be thinking about the next step at all. So if you would quantify this, so like what is then the the retention rate? And I I don't know how you would qualify the usage rate. Like, But is there a magical number you say when you're at X in terms of gross retention, you have product market fit? Yeah, it depends on, you know, what what is your average contract value and what is your ideal customer profile. But if you're in the mid-market towards enterprise, 90% gross retention is sort of the benchmark that everyone's looking for. If you can get that higher, that's obviously brilliant. If you're more SME uh, and particularly PLG, uh, it becomes a bit more tricky, but somewhere in the range of 75 to 80%, I would say, is a really good target. Right. And in terms of usage, which is really the precursor to the actual retention number, it, it's there, there's it's you know it will vary depending on use case, depending on product and ICP. But what we want to see is increasing usage, steady usage from people are on, and more people coming on, which drives usage. Right. Awesome. And I see Ula, you're nodding here. So these are numbers you feel you can relate to in terms of when you look at your business and how you went through these different phases. Yeah, absolutely. And as Mickey said, there's, there is no one rule here because it's really about what segment you're going after and what go-to-market motion you're choosing and strategy. So, But I, I am in the SME space, which is quite unusual, actually. There's not a lot of experienced investors in Europe in my space, high-velocity PLG SME. Uh, meaning that I'm selling, you know, in, in, in normal people's terms, I'm selling self-service software service into small and medium-sized businesses. 
Uh, and yes, the, the gross retention will o- almost always be uh, lower than, than in enterprise SaaS, but also you need to look up the funnel then. The velocity of intake is much better and the, the economics of intakes is much better. So it's, it's not, you have to look at both sides of the equation every time when you kind of judge what is good and, and what is not good. Right. All right. So, so we've established that once you have product market fit, the next phase is to establish the go-to-market fit. Mikke, what is in your words, like what is the go-to-market fit and wh- why is it so important to build that and get that right before scaling? Yeah, I think Ola you know, said it already, right? The, the one massive mistake that we see companies doing time and time and time again is premature scaling. So throwing money at the problem before you establish proper foundations. And this is where this sort of three-stage framework becomes so helpful because if you don't have product market fit, there's no, there's no real you know, good reason to double down on growth at all costs. Similarly, before you do that, if you have product market fit, there is this intermediate step that if you wanna build a really large company that where you have sustainable long-term growth, you have to build the foundations of the growth engine before you just double down on growth. So, you know, thinking about things in relation to go-to-market fit, we think it's super helpful to help people prioritize what to focus on as they scale their company from, you know, a couple of million of ARR to maybe 10 to 20 billion ARR, from maybe 50 people to 100, 200 people. And what are the things to invest in at that stage? All right. So, Ola, what does your go-to-market fit journey look like? How was it for Soundtrack? Uh, painful. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, absolutely not a straight line. I'll try to keep it short and not take you through my whole trauma here. But it's... Uh, uh, doing music, uh, <laughs> the music industry isn't the easiest place to uh, build a business. We we have to relate to something very complex on our value in our value chain called m- music rights holders, meaning the big labels and the publishers. And sixteen thousand two hundred deals later, uh, took me three and a half years and almost a heart attack. Uh, we have now reached the prerequisite of a product market fit in our market, which is providing all the commercial music in the world. I mean, if, if you're buying a music service and you don't have Drake uh, or Sarah Larson, um, you you don't have a product that has product market fit. That's just reality. Spotify has trained every human being to doing so. So it, it, it was not just building kind of a workflow software and focusing on the customer. It was also providing the prerequisites of uh, a content offering, um, which is super complex and expensive and requires, you know, $20, 30000000 dollars of investment just to get to first base. So that's just a little bit of the context of, of my world. But then obviously, the general note of uh, building a product, uh, a software experience for the business buyer that um, reaches uh, product market fit first, meaning that they're, they like it. Um, they're buying it, and we we conduct a, a PLG strategy with a, a free trial motion. So that's really where we started kind of perfecting our game. Once we had the product in place, we'd launched our two products, which is Soundtrack Essential and Soundtrack Unlimited, the two tiers that we feel that we had to get to in order to unlock product market fit. 
then we could start focusing on kind of what generally SaaS companies do, uh, the software uh, experience, right, uh, for, for businesses. And, and um, that together with the PLG motion um, has been a really exciting uh, two years because we realized two years ago when, <clears throat> when you know, just moving into COVID, <laughs> we, re- we realized, okay, COVID is here. We have, we're, we, we might make it through, but if we're going to make it through, we're going to make it productive and we're really going to double down on our PLG strategy. And that really kind of defines the company these challenging years because it was really the search for go-to-market fit. We had the baseline offering in place in terms of, uh, 100 million tracks as of today in 75 markets. We're the only company in the world who has that offering. And then we can focus on the customer experience. And it, it was really about kind of fi- reading everything about PLG and how you, how you get to go to market fit in a global SME market. Last, last thing I want to say is uh, before is like it was, it was all about understanding uh, how to scale self-service into the SME market. That's what we double down on. Yeah, if I can just make a comment on that, right? It's like, it's like Ula and Soundtrack, you guys are so, like, quite unusual in the sense that you you probably did the most difficult thing there is. Like you, you created an incredible moat as you started the company and during your go-to-market or product market fit and go-to-market stage, you sort of define that that content asset that you sit on and those agreements that is an incredible moat for like the forward growth phase right and most companies you know they they tend to establish that that they tend to establish that slightly longer down the road but you guys started in that end and it's probably the most difficult thing you could ever do but once you're through it it's an incredible asset so i'll just you know compliment you guys on having gotten that done so what's a moat oh uh, yeah a moat is your sustainable competitive advantage that is super hard for anyone to replicate okay and obviously these sixteen thousand contracts that's that's nothing anybody can just do overnight there uh, no probably not and i would i would i would just add to do uh, it's what's usually referred to barrier to entry for other potential competitors. Right. I want to come back a little bit, Ulla, to what you said, and actually want to hear Mika's thoughts on this, uh, you know, how you guys have perfected the self-service, the PLG motion. But, uh, but I recall, you know, when we had you on the podcast last time, you guys went through a few different go-to-market motions with direct sales, you had, you know, field sales, partner sales, and so on, until you identified that the self-service PLG motion was the right one for you. And... You know, that's, that's like you said, it's, it could be an expensive, uh, a tedious, painful process. And Miki, I want to ask you, like, from your perspective, like, is there a trick to get it right the first time instead of going through all these go-to-market functions? No. So, so you know, it would be very, very, very uh, assumptive of me telling, you know, Ula that I would, you know, run his business in a better way than he would. It's like, it's, 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 it's important to think about, you know, things conceptually, but going through the exploratory phases is just part of getting to that pro- you know, product and go to market fit, right? So it's interesting if you think about what Ula and, and Soundtrack have been through, you know, you guys started out, you did, uh, you know, in terms of customer focus, there was a little bit of enterprise, there was a little bit of direct sales, there was a bit of SME, there was a bit of inbound sales, not necessarily PLG, but, you know, maybe, uh, you know, paid inbound, et cetera, et cetera, right? In the sort of framework for finding go-to-market fit, 
the first and foremost sort of recommendation is to double down and really focus on one ICP. And I think that's what you guys have been doing. You, 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 over time, you've found that it's SME, right? It's not enterprise. And it's online. It's not feet on the street. And it's actually PLG, right? So that's you know, specializing, you know, finding your ICP, going after that very laser focus, and then finding your go-to-market motion that works. That's another one of the, your core recommendations we have around how to find your go-to-market fit. And you guys have done exactly that. Could, could you have done it faster? I don't know, actually. It, it, it really depends on the market you're in and how, you know, how the cycles move. But it's very clear that you've gone through these motions uh, according, exactly according to the framework and getting to the point where you're doubling down on something that really works. Yeah, and I can add to that, if I may, kind of from the practical perspective. Um, I mean, I would have preferred not having to go through all of this, obviously. <laughs> But it's very easy, but it's also here when you made it through and you survived, it's extremely, uh, I feel very certain and comfortable about our current go-to-market strategy and our ICP and in general what we're doing right now. Uh, and that's because I've been in the other segments. The enterprise segment is, is obvious to get carried away. You get a call from Starbucks, you fly to Seattle, and you're fired up that your startups gets, gets to meet the biggest enterprise client in the world. Of course, I did that mistake. Uh, but when you've really felt the pain of the channels that don't work and the segments that don't work and, and are able to kind of um, you know, go for the ones that you see working in the numbers, meaning the numbers of scalable unit economics, which is kind of the first point of go-to-market fit, then, you know, I, I'm in a position right now, having done these mistakes, that I'll never go back. And, and that's, I, I mean, I could see it as um, a, a big, huge investment in order to stay on strategy moving forward. Right. So, I think we have established here that you need to have your go-to-market fit in place before you start scaling. But how do you actually know when you have achieved it? Yeah, no, so, so the, the end game of having found go-to-market fit is all about you know, having this scalable, uh, sustainable metrics for understanding how to grow your business. So this, this is you know, the, the commercial metrics like CAC, CAC payback, LTV to CAC, magic number. Having established sound metrics around those, that's really how you prove that you've found your go-to-market fit. And, you know, the mistake that I see a lot of companies doing is they define these metrics very early on when they are at maybe a million of ARR or two million of ARR. But the problem with that is you haven't gone through this phase yet. You've sold to your initial fans, to early adopters, to maybe your friends and family, right? The, the the issue is doing it at some sort of scale and repeatability. And that's the core thing. And that doesn't really happen until you're at like, you know, 10 million or something like that. Okay. Uh, makes sense. But uh, yeah, you intrigued me a little bit with the magic number. What, what is that? What could it be? The magic number is a simplification. It's a P&L metric or, an, uh, you know, an off-P&L metric where you look at what's the amount of ARR you have added in comparison to how much you have invested in marketing and sales. And typically you have an offset. So if you look at what's the ARR I added in Q4 this year, depending on your sales cycle, you look at, okay, 
compared to what was my marketing and sales investment in the quarter before that or two quarters before that if you have a six month sales cycle gotcha that makes a lot of sense all right so so ola any comments on what uh, Mikke said here about how to know when you have achieved go to market fit i completely agree and i can quickly take you through where we are right now where uh, we are a uh, smb focused uh, PLG company, obviously, where our ARR, our annual recurring revenue currently is trailing into $22 million. So we are really in kind of the growth and moat we stage. We've taken us through the go-to-market fit stage. Uh, and I can say that uh, even to Mickey now, because we have an LTV CAC ratio of 4.8 in Q3 closing, just fresh numbers from last night, actually, which is um, for us, the rule is to be above three here, the ratio getting three times back on the CAC that you're investing on the LTV on a cohort basis. We're currently a bit too efficient, meaning that we're not, I would say we're not spending enough in marketing. Uh, we could increase that. Our CAC payback time in Q3 average is at nine months. Uh, and our magic number in Q3 is 1.36, which is um, right in between 1 to 1.5. I think where investors kind of look where you should be. If you're too high, then then there's something wacky going on. If you're too low, you don't have the efficiency. And then I always like to look at the net revenue retention as well on a logo basis, which I know Mika also loves, which tells <laughs> you kind of how your cohorts grow over time as well, because when you move from go to market fit into the growth and mode stage, you, you don't, you have to have your intake, your new customer model working and, and sound and growing with, with solid economics. But you also have to have your expansion business, meaning that your cus- the customers that you have grown, those two together are, are, is the key to unlock kind of exponential growth moving forward. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And so, uh, Mickey, I'm going to put you to the test here. You're not getting away this easy from this one here. <laughs> like when we talk about the CAC payback time, and Ula, you said you had nine months here. And, and we can all agree that that is good. But is there not a scenario, if we just disregard a cash flow perspective, that maybe I have a go-to-market fit, just my pricing is not right. And it takes me, I don't know, 12, 18 months to recuperate uh, my cost of goods or sort of the CAC. Is that automatically then disqualify me for saying you don't have a go-to-market fit? Maybe it's just my pricing that's wrong. So the simple answer is no, that's not necessarily disqualifying me. It all depends what is your ACV and what is your lifetime value compared to your CAC. If you're selling massive contracts into enterprise, several hundred thousands or even millions of dollars of ACV, you don't have nine months CAC payback. It just doesn't happen because the upfront investment to get those contracts usually is significantly larger and sales cycles are longer. So, you know, you will often see an enterprise, you know, 12, 18, even 24 months CAC payback, but it still makes tons of sense. As long as you can fund that, it makes tons of sense from an LTV to CAC perspective, because those contracts are usually super profitable and very, very long-term. Right. But in ULA segment, it's like, you know, a nine-month a nine months CAC payback is really, really strong. Anything less than 12, I would say, is great, uh, particularly given that you guys are now at the stage where you have great retention and net revenue retention, so you're growing a lifetime value really well over time. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and thanks for that answer, Mikael, and congratulations, Ula. I'm writing a piece here on capital efficiency, and, like, I should just ask you all the questions because, like, you, you clearly check the mark on, on being capital efficient. But let's talk a little bit about uh, the go-to-market fit, what we call accelerators. Are there certain areas 
that you need to work on it? Which are those and, and how do you get that right? Let's start with you, Miki. Yeah, there, there's there's a number that we have identified, and I'm sure there are more if you you know if you're just creative enough. But Ula mentioned that you know what's really important as you come through the go to market fit phase and into the growth and mouth phase, high net revenue retention. That's the secret sauce and the magic of SaaS, right? If you can sell more to your existing customers without spending way too much money on acquiring new ones, you will be dandy, right? So doubling down on retention. That's sort of the first step making sure that you have a product that customers love and then adding that upsells motion, just expanding on your existing customers. That's, that's kind of the first thing that we usually talk about. And then back to what we said earlier on, like the positioning and focus, deciding, you know, how are you going to compete? What is my ICP? What is my buyer persona? What's the use case? How do I differentiate versus other people out there? So, positioning and focus is just so sadly overlooked among most companies because you know it's not something you necessarily think about once you get going but when you go through the go to market fit stage you will never graduate to growth and moat unless you've figured out your positioning because that's how you compete in a global market right and then i will also mention like you know going through the motions of specializing revenue team roles and responsibilities having a bit of outbound enterprise a bit of inbound sme now you know go uh, plg driven sme right specializing revenue team roles and responsibilities there and and doubling down on what works is really really critical right and does, does this make sense to you ula as well walk us through a little bit some of the accelerators that you guys worked on that that got you to these 22 million where you are now so we once again our acv is you know high velocity sme so it's only you know Two and a half to three thousand uh, dollars. So we have, on average, uh, three restaurants per account. You know, roughly, just to give you an example, of what we're selling into. So very, very, very much kind of the SME global market. So we deploy something that we call SME land and expand, which pretty much explains what Mickey said. You need to have the unit economics in your go-to-market fit in your customer acquisition first of all. So when I'm when I'm spending a hundred bucks, I need to get three hundred bucks back, right? But you also have to have the expansion business of kind of when the customers come in, they they like the product, they stay with the product and the cohorts grow. You can sell on those cohorts and expand the business over time. So I think that's kind of leading up to my answer. Um, when you've established like this high velocity intake, I mean, we're bringing in 6,000 new business customers in our funnel every month right now uh, at, into our free trial. That's a massive pond to kind of fish in, right? So I think that's my first answer. That's that's really our growth engine. It's the ability to uh, you know prove that the demand for our product is out there, and that proof point in kind of PLG is top of the funnel free trials. I, I listen to Alex at Spotify when he talks about consumer businesses, right. and he only talks about the freemium uh, pond the whole time. That proves that the product is there, and they have and the, the premium teams has something to fish in. Right and pick up the the paying customers and it's exactly the same thing for us. If we keep growing our our free trial base on the level that we're doing, we can prove that we have a growth engine and kind of improve our game and fishing in that pond. Meaning improving the core metric for our company right now is free to paying conversion rate. And free to paying conversion rate is our 2023 focus. We have an extremely like clear focus for all teams around moving from 10 to 20% on free to paying next year on the conversion rate level. 
Are you tired of communicating with prospects through PDFs and slide decks that get lost in long email threads? Get Accept's digital sales firm empowers revenue teams to increase their win rate by engaging and understanding buyers, from opportunity to sign deal. A microsite easily shareable to all stakeholders by a link. We can share sales content and quotes and communicate to get the contract signed. A collaborative buyer experience that wins the deal. We call it a digital sales firm. So, so Mikkel, do you need also to have a certain level of um, seniority and organization structure also internally in order to, to have go-to-market fit? Or is there anything to that? Yes, it's a great question, Thomas. So one of the other major sort of parts of building for go-to-market fit is to right-size the go-to-market team leads. That's, you know, VP sales, VP marketing or CMO and even a CRO, right? And the, the, the problem we see here time and time again is companies overreaching uh, for for this particular phase. This phase is about building the foundations for the growth engine. It's not about managing a 50-people organization where you have direct reports who manage other people, right? So the mistake that people do is they hire someone who has essentially never built it. They've just managed it, so they don't know how to build it. And they're not prepared to roll up the sleeves and do the dirty work of actually building. So the, the, the example I always give is like, at this stage, you're probably looking for a VP sales who will define and build your sales process, whether that is inbound, outbound, POG, et cetera, and who will you know, build the right sales organization and compensation for people and will recruit the first five to 10 AEs into that. It is not about finding a CRO who can manage a 30 to 50 people organization with global responsibilities and regional five, you know, regional directors, et cetera. So you should hire for that particular phase. And that is a really critical piece as you go through here, because we see so many, you know, failed recruits in this particular space down to that. Right, Ola. So, how how was it at Soundtrack? Yeah. Now, and Ola, I think I think you have just you know graduated from this stage, and on your new CMO is really the next level caliber candidate, right? Who who can take you way way beyond where you are today? Yes, uh, and I agree. I mean, we are we are beyond that stage right now because we are a global company. You know, going from twenty to hundred is our obviously next kind of big goal. But I want to comment on also uh, when building that that growth organization, um, I've clearly like kind of brought out three positions and it's a, a chief growth officer, a chief revenue officer and a chief marketing officer. So I have all three and I've put them in the management team together with very clear uh, roles. But the both the chief revenue officer who is responsible for our customer base and our expansion business and the chief growth officer, which is responsible for our intake. So let's just simplify it, say the growth uh, officer takes care of our, you know, free to paying conversion rate and the, the revenue officer takes care of our net revenue retention. And, and both of those are internal recruitments. I've lifted up people from engineering and, and product into those roles because it's so they need to know the product. They need to know all the layers of our software stack in order to manage those roles. It's impossible to come in and drive them. But on the chief marketing role, which is the marketing and kind of her responsibility is the cost for free trial. 
Um, they all work together around the funnel, of course, at the end of the day, but like specific KPI. Uh, I had to have an American. I had to have a U.S.-based senior CMO because that's really where we're going to start scaling our investments moving forward. Uh, so that's where I chose to recruit from the outside. But the others came from the inside. And, and just your comment on that, it's it's so great, Ola, that you did that. You know, you didn't do that when you were five million still searching for go-to-market fit. You found that person and you added that person at the sort of next stage, which I think is the, the real learning lesson here. So, Mikael, is there any additional go-to-market accelerators that you would like to highlight? Yeah, one of the you know favorite ones is pricing, uh, where we see all sorts of uh, <laughs> funky, funky pricing uh, out there, which is not necessarily by design, right? So, I, I and I get it, right? When you're early on, you get going, you 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 know you you throw the spaghetti at the wall and you see what sticks. But there's a big part of building a proper growth engine is to tailor your pricing so that you're a creating minimum friction in terms of customer adoption and b you're capturing as much as value as possible as you grow with those customers and expand and i think that is something that a lot of companies should be working a lot more on and i know that pricing is something you guys have spent a lot of time on yeah so i mean i i I look at this virtually now in my head you know you've probably all seen the try the pricing triangle it's probably it has a fancier name like when you're at a certain stage where correct me if i'm wrong here when when you're in this stage it's all about land grab you want to bring on as many customers as you can the right type of customers and then maybe you will use your pricing strategy as a way to accelerate this maybe you're not going to maximize each and every customer at this point because getting the customers on board getting that data is more important or am i wrong mika i think you're absolutely spot on daniel and you said something there which was really important which is really key to the concept of go to market fit you're not maximizing for growth here you're maximizing for long-term growth by putting in place a pricing model that will allow you to grow way, way beyond where you are today. So it may just be that, yes, I could probably churn out another 25% on these customers today, but if I look at it long-term, there's 200% upside by putting in place the pricing model I do today, and that's the key. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. So, Ula, I don't know, how, how, how did this look for you guys in real life? Like, walk us through the, the evolution of pricing on your end. Yeah. Um, I, and I just want to underline the fact that pricing is kind of the forgotten holy grail. Um, and specifically, I think here in Europe, where SaaS companies are a bit less mature than in the U.S., because pricing is always a core component in like when you when you meet mature SaaS professionals in U.S. But so I, I look at it. Uh, and the way we approach it is, and by no means are we specialists, by the way, uh, we're learning uh, also. We, we look at offensive pricing and defensive pricing. Um, that's kind of how we look at it. Offensive pricing is how we play offense, how we, how we, how we use pricing as a customer acquisition tool. Um, and once we end going back to our model, we have a free trial motion, right, with a huge amount of people coming in to try the product, test drive the car before buying it, right? So there's a first question, how, how big role does pricing play in offense in terms of getting people into your free trial and becoming product qualified lead, meaning that they're, they're having a successful test drive? That's the first question. That's different in between different segments because in our, in our world, you know, the ACVs are small. So 
it's not a lot of money, if I may say so, to buy, you know, a subscri- three subscription times 50 bucks a month, $150 for, for three, a three restaurant entrepreneur. So pricing in our world doesn't play a huge role in our offensive pricing, meaning to get people trying the product. And if they love the product, 150 bucks a month is not going to be the thing that's, that kind of stops them from buying. So when we've established a good free trial, a product qualified lead, PQL, meaning that they've, they've, in our case, the definition is play 100 tracks. That means that they have ad- adopted the product. That's only almost six hours of music. We have an extremely high free to pay and conversion rate and price doesn't play a huge role there. So I think we can increase pricing on that side. Then let's move to defensive pricing which is also to make his point, which is the net revenue retention exercise where you're always looking at trying to, you know, net out the maximum value of your customer base over time. You can lose deals if you don't have a flexible, smart, well thought through defensive pricing strategy. So let's say somebody's trying to get a client from us, take our take customers away from us, which some competitors are trying to do. Then the teams, the account management teams need to know how to kind of play the pricing game in order to still keep the keep the customers because you don't want to lose you know well functioning customers, but still at an acceptable value rate, which is back at the end of the day a pricing question because p- people are going to take your try to take your customers with pricing as a weapon. So I think for SaaS companies, you need to think about your offensive pricing strategy and your defensive pricing strategy, and it's all about kind of the, at the end of the day it's the LTV CAC. Uh, equation uh, and sometimes you have to just practically choose to let a customer go because it's it, it's just not worth it anymore all right that, that makes a lot of sense i see both of you are, are, are nodding your heads here so like we, we've established that all right is there any other final remarks from both of you here that where you have seen either yourselves or the companies you guys have helped and supported where people tend to potentially go wrong with their go-to-market fit, something they miss out on. Yeah, I would I would just highlight demand generation. There's there's you know a lot of companies get going early on and they they sell in their home market or they sell to a network of people they've already sold to, etc. Right, but as you want to build a growth engine and take something to a really large scale and grow it globally, figuring out the engine around your demand generation is just so super important. Uh, and I know you guys, Ula, obviously have, have worked on the, you know, the freemium model now, and that really is working out for you. But that, that is one area, again, where we see companies going wrong time and time again. They just haven't properly thought about it and engineered something which scales. Uh, and if, if I may also comment on that one, um, I think my, my favorite kind of topic on this area in, in the SaaS world is, uh, coming from the consumer markets, almost my whole team does. We very naturally look at, at the customer engagement and usage metrics, um, kind of, you know, monthly active, weekly active, daily active. How are they and how are they using our product? Um, rather than looking at kind of contract value, right? So what I see in, in SaaS companies compared to earlier is like a lot of focus on the contracted value. And then you look at those accounts and only like three seats are using the product of, you know, sold 20. And that's obviously going to be not going to be a great renewal process when when that comes into play. So I think my favorite thing for to kind of contribute into this, everyone should be becoming much more focused on user metrics on your customer base and how people are using the product uh, rather than kind of run around and, and, and show a massive contract value. 
uh, aggregated contract value because it's really back to the the aggregated usage value of a customer base that tells the story of how how you've established go-to-market fit and, and product market fit. Amen to that. So, Mikael, are there different go-to-market strategies and what decides what a business should select, would you say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ola has already mentioned PLG that I understand is a big thing for Soundtrack. Is, is there other ways of doing it? Yes, th- there definitely is. And, and it's all about understanding what is your preferred motion and really, you know, finessing and fine-tuning and optimizing that before you try to do too many things, right? And And... Obviously, PLG is the flavor of the day, and it's a great strategy for some companies. But it's not a strategy for every company, just to be very clear. If you have a product which touches a lot of different decision makers, which has a high average price, and where there's complexity of integration and onboarding, PLG just is not usually the motion that works, right? So I, I just want to make sure that people understand that. And and in PLG, it's just so important to think about touch points and the user journey. And as Ola said, it's it's really much of a consumer uh, sort of uh, framework for how to think about catching a user. And then as you expand people, that's when you add more of the traditional SaaS focus. So you go from a user to a team, to a department, to a division, to an enterprise segment, right? So adding that traditional more, maybe, you know, outbound sales motion on top of PLG, but you do it on top of very warm leads because you have users. And in the ideal case, the the product just spreads itself in an organization. So actually they will approach you about getting a much larger like sort of enterprise agreement, right? So I think trying to force those things too early is a massive mistake. Similar thing, if you are a community-driven company, right? The community is there because they may love your product and they are, you know, want to be experts in a particular area and they get value out of each other. But they're also super sensitive about how you approach them and how you sell them, right? So there, there's... There's a lot of companies that think about community and like, yay, now we have this fantastic pool of champions here. Now we're just going to you know, bang on and sell to them, right? Well, that, that could work. But think about it, for instance, in the open source world, right? And, you know, if, if you're a developer first company, those people simply do not want to be sold to. <laughs> they, they want to decide on their own decision journey. And when they're ready, they're ready and don't bother them before that, right? So, there's all sorts of nuances to think about how you do this, depending on what your main go-to-market motion is. I, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like uh, I've, Both Thomas and I have been through this journey, and I can just echo what you said. That makes a lot of sense. Hey, l- listening to all of this, you guys have actually been uh, much more in sync than I anticipated and expected, which is probably a, <laughs> which is probably a good thing, I suppose. <laughs> but Ula, I got to ask you, uh, and I, I know Miki has not invested in your company, so you can speak freely here. Like you obviously have investors, you probably met a bunch of them through your career and so on. What's the worst piece of advice you've received from an investor when it comes to go to market fit? Oh, the worst! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not going to point out at anyone on the kind of work, but there is there is a um, so there is a very clear, um, distinct feeling when you meet an investor who has operational experience 
versus investors who don't have operational experience. And and I honestly, at the stage we're at, uh, it's not really worth the time talking to investors who don't have operational experience. And you you kind of see it right away. So the worst type of advice is any type of advice from a, a person who's never worked in a company before, who's never actually sold uh, a, you know, a, a, a glass of lemonade on the street in her or his life before, telling you uh, what's your outlook and, what, and kind of how, how's your sales motion working? Why isn't this working? You kind of like lose interest and I'm a really bad poker player. So <laughs> those meetings don't work out really well for me. <laughs> you kind of see me zooming out and like going, I got to get out of here uh, right now and trying to be polite. But but it's really, for me, it's that, you know, but when you meet an investor, and I actually, I'm not here just saying it because Mick is here. You meet investors that have done, have actually worked in companies, have done a lot of deals. Uh, and and it's a, it's a huge difference discussing your business with them. You can learn something. You might not get an investment, but you can learn something. You can establish a relationship over time uh, and you can help each other. And it, it's really binary. It's It's on or off. Uh, when it comes to me, at least uh, in terms of good investors and bad investors. Yeah, and if, if I can just counter on that, like, so, so what's the what's the worst entrepreneurial pitch that I see in here, right? <laughs> Which relates to to, to to all of these things we've been talking about, right? That that is the you know the relatively early company that comes with a bombardment of metrics. And, you know, claiming that we have found our, whether it's product market fit or go to market fit or whatever it is, like we have all these fantastic metrics and we're just ready to scale. And they've really not been through any of these foundational steps. And you try to just tease out of them, whether you're like, have you guys thought about this? Have you thought about that? And how do you think about this? How do you think about that? And they're just so cocksure about, no, no. We're just going to do it like this because we have these metrics in place. That is my pet peeve. I just can't deal with that because it's so much more, like Ola said, it's so nuanced, right? And it's so complex and it will vary. In your, when you're in that early phase, it's great that you found something. But you know, having the curiosity and hum- humility to really figure out what's going to scale, I think that's absolutely necessary. Right, so I think this concludes the second part of this three-parter, and we have one episode left that will focus on moat and growth, so that will come later this year. Uh, but besides that episode that we, of course, all are waiting for, is there anyone else or anything else you would like us to, to have on the show here, starting with you, Ola? What are you, do you have any suggestions? Um, not really. I mean, you guys have actually d- done... Uh, the best job ever so far and you brought in Kyle from OpenView on your on your session uh, or on your digital um, SAS Nordic that you, you're done all right okay <laughs> let's ho- let's hope not <laughs> OpenView is obviously it's my it's my account I'm a, a little bit of a fanboy but it's uh, yeah yeah so I don't have any other suggestions for another 10 years. So you, you'd, pro- you'd probably like the, the, the upcoming conversations we have on uh, re- reverse trials. Then it's a, it's a big thing. And he's going to talk a little bit more about reverse trials. Super interesting. Uh, it's, uh, it's really int- it's an interesting topic. Uh, I'm, we're looking at it a lot right now. Uh, so looking forward to that. Right. And what about you, Mickey? I, I think I said last time I was on the podcast, I said Mark Roberge. 
who is obviously another very smart thinker in terms of PLG and like very in- influential in the SaaS community. So I'll, I'll, I'll throw in another name now, which is April Dunford, who really is a guru when it comes to positioning and helping companies really nail their positioning before they start to scale. This this is honestly, I think, usually the most tricky part because it involves killing so many holy cows and you know really thinking about what is my long-term focus and differentiation here. So having April on that, she's written books, she's done talks, she's like a you know very frequent speaker on the topic. That would be something I think everybody should listen into. And you know, Mika, this is a little bit up to you and I now. If if she doesn't show up on the show, it's because she sat next to us for a four hour four hour dinner <laughs> you may have scared her off Daniel. i didn't <laughs> if she does show up then we'll be like it's because of that dinner yeah if i may add something last comment i don't have a name but hearing uh, every all of you talk about pricing and my own experience with pricing and how how much better we need to get on pricing um in the nordic and the european SaaS community Let's try to find the best pricing guru out there. I don't know, Mick, if you have it, but I don't have it right now. So, so th- there are obviously people and firms there. I, I would, you know, I, 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 I'm banging my own drum a little bit when it comes to this, but my colleague Ingrid is actually an ex- pricing expert, and she's, she's writing some really insightful pieces about that, which, you know, is a good starting point for people that we could obviously find, you know, what one of these, you know, big brand names uh, out of the US to come and talk to you guys as well. And 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 I can second that because Ingrid is actually working on a piece on usage-based pricing right now as we speak. Ula, might be very relevant for you and it will be published uh, very soon on the SAS Nordic website. Might already have been published when we are speaking right now. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a little bit hard to be on <laughs> since we are not live. <laughs> but to try to tie this together, if you found this interesting today, what we have spoke about, you're in luck. Because if you go to Ox webpage and you go to gtmf.ox.vc or go just to ox.vc and look around, there is actually the go-to-market fit toolkit where you can read more and there are, are, are links that can take you to you know a lot of different resources in this area. So... Um, do that if you're interested, and in a while we will go to Moat and Growth so you can hear what that is all about. So looking forward to that. Thank you, Ola, and thank you, Mickey, for being on the show, and uh, see you around. Okay, Daniel, a lot of good learnings here. So any main takeaways from your side? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it was nice how uh, actually both of them, but Mickey particularly uh, reinforced that, you know, go to market fit. It's not a gut feeling. It's like y- you can measure it. Like there's certain metrics, whether that's, you know, your CAC or CAC payback time or whatever that is that you can benchmark in your space. Like when you've reached that number, you know, you have a fit so to say so it's not something that somebody just decides i think we got it now let's accelerate no the numbers will tell you if you got it or not what about you thomas no but i mean this is very obvious one um make sure to do your homework make sure to have this in place before you start scaling like like crazy and um, i mean as um, michael also said what he hears from from entrepreneurs is that no, maybe they, they they think it they got it they they know all the different abbreviations and metrics and stuff uh, you see it on the PowerPoint but then if you really have this uh, down 
is another type of thing. And another thing that I also thought about was, you know, when it comes to right-sizing your go-to-market teams and who you are bringing in on the team, uh, you can't just have a person that, you know, have the experience of managing such an operation. You need a builder, you need someone that, that can actually create something there. So, uh, so having those people in those roles, and I think also Ola mentioned where when he hired his uh, chief growth officer or, or some other roles that he talked about there, that he actually got people from the product organization that, that knew the product and, and sort of could bring that knowledge into their new role. So I, I think that was interesting as well. Good stuff, Thomas. See, I got two ones this time. That's like, I would say three. I was like, you touched on three. That's like good, really good. Awesome. Now, like always, this was insightful. We hope you guys uh, enjoyed it as well and, and found it equally insightful. Speaking about insights, the best way to learn, in our opinion at least, is, is to learn from other practitioners. Yeah. So right now we've opened up for new applicants if you want to join our CEO network or any of the other nine networks across nine different disciplines. So VP product, uh, sales, marketing, whatever it is. There's nine different disciplines. Now is the time to apply for that. And Thomas, where do they go and do that? They go to sasnordic.com. Uh, in the menu option, community, you will find those pages. You can also join the, the SAS Nordic Slack community that is open for everyone. But if you're a CEO or if you're an executive in, in a company that has more than 2 million euro ARR, you can join those network groups as well. And um, also, if you want to learn more, another option is to head over to the sasnodit.com webpage because we are increasing the amount of articles created by our great community there. So a lot of learnings also in written form there. And um, then we have other cool things in front of us. We have Sassius 2023 next year. We're going to talk a lot more about that. But uh, tickets should already be be released that you can purchase on sassius2023.com so check that out and you know how it went last time we're capping it again at 1200 attendees so if you missed out last time yeah make sure to get your tickets in time this time please do and if you are enjoying our content besides you know telling a friend you can also head over to spotify or itunes give us a five-star review it helps us getting more visibility for the show and uh, you can always reach out if you have any ideas, any feedback, anything. You can reach out on LinkedIn or you can send an email to contact at sasnodic.com. We'd love to hear from you. Have a really great day and see you next time. See you.